Attention in the water. Attention in the water. This is the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Be advised, State Parks is asking us to make an announcement to let you know you are paddleboarding next to approximately 15 great white sharks. Uh, they're advising that you exit the water in a calm manner. Uh, the sharks are as close as the surf line. Thank you for your cooperation. There are fears a monster shark measuring more than five metres is lurking off North Stradbroke Island in Queensland. Well, no one's seen it. The Bly government's released photos showing how it mauled another large white pointer. Unbeached, two attacks, 90 minutes apart. And authorities say this hasn't happened in decades. The first 911 call at 4.12 p.m. Sunday afternoon, an hour and a half later, a second victim two miles down the beach, and all of it coming just days after another shark attack 30 miles away. Another attack just two miles up the beach, and another frantic call. Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We've got good news and bad news. After a 45-year lull, sharks are back. That's great news for the marine biologists, the environmental types, and those who believe that more sharks are needed to preserve the delicate balance of oceanic life. That's potentially bad news for seals, sea lions, surfers, and the sun and sand worshippers who flock to the world's beaches for relaxation or a swim in the cool, salty brine. However, being well-informed is half the battle, and that's what's going on with this two-part series, Information. I think a disclaimer is appropriate here. It's not our intention to scare anyone away from the beaches. I live at the beach, and shark attacks are very rare here. Air patrols are present. High lifeguard stands and lifeguards with binoculars are present. Bottlenose dolphins and porpoises help provide security outside the swimming perimeter. Millions of people enter the water here annually. We go 10 years at a time without a shark attack. There's no reason to choose the mountains over the beach this summer. And now for our story. As we write this story in the spring of 2017, the newspapers, in the U.S. at least, are full of reports documenting the rise of shark sightings off the California coast and the internet is just as full of helicopter view video showing large schools of sharks swimming within 50 feet of the sand line at various beaches. Other articles document and basically praise the rise of shark populations on both coasts of the U.S. and the coasts of Australia and Africa. 
because this is seen by environmentalists as an achievement in restoring the balance of nature despite mankind's encroachment. We recently celebrated 100 years of shark awareness here in the U.S. because it wasn't until the early 1900s, between 1910 and 1916, that people started flocking to the beaches, and very few people knew much about sharks. Those were old deep-sea stories, just a part of seafaring history. The first attack of a marine monster dates back to Herodotus in 492 B.C. We avoid using the word shark because that word didn't exist until a millennium later. As the Greek story, which was in the form of a poem, goes, sponge fisherman Tarsus was being hoisted aboard his boat by two companions when he was attacked by a sea monster that tore away the lower sections of his body. They buried him, as the poem states elegantly, at both land and sea. For centuries, ship's logs held accounts of men who had been washed overboard, being devoured by huge, toothy monsters. Fast forward to Hawaii, where the U.S. Navy was building its Pearl Harbor base just before the turn of the 19th century, around 1895, and discovered the remains of an enclosure which historians deemed to be the place where Hawaiian kings would make captives turned gladiators fight with captured sharks who were surviving on a diet of live humans, probably belonging to the king's opposing political party. The only weapon the gladiators were given was a single shark's tooth mounted on a short wooden handle, which was gripped tightly in the fist. The warrior only got one chance to win, that being to take out the shark on the first pass. The gladiators discovered, through grisly trial and error, that the only way to kill the shark was to disembowel him by diving underneath and using the claw. If you survived, it was training for day two. Such were the games that many civilizations played eons ago. Very sad when you think about it. I try not to. A postscript to the Pearl Harbor base. When the massive construction of the base was completed in 1900, at the cost of $4 million, the foundations suddenly collapsed, probably under the pressure of an undersea eruption, and the dockings sank underwater. The locals, still clinging to the old tradition, said, You've angered the Queen of Sharks, and this is revenge. And when you think about it, Hawaii's been a hub of shark attacks for a long time. And listen up, shark lovers and environmentalists. The mystery of the shark was no joke to the people of the Fiji Islands, who, twice a year, would perform shark-kissing ceremonies, the purpose of which was to please the shark gods and hopefully prevent attacks upon their population. Father LaPlante was a missionary in these islands until 1938 and told how the sharks were captured in a large net, turned over on their backs by drugged witch doctors, and kissed on their stomachs. What astonished Father LaPlante was that the sharks seemed to enjoy it. They would freeze, as if the act of kissing their bellies had put them in a trance. This account must have reached a history class somewhere, because in 1960, a group of college students visiting Fort Lauderdale made it an initiation rite for a fraternity pledge to kiss the belly of a tiger shark they had somehow landed. The local police discovered the action and put the kibosh on any future risky business. We're going to take you back to 1916 on the east coast of the U.S. in southern New Jersey to the little town of Beach Haven, which back then was just starting to see a pretty good influx of Philadelphia folks who were planning regular trips to the beach for rest and relaxation. I'm sure you've seen the old beach pictures. Striped swimsuits and bathing caps covered everything back then, even ankles in some cases. But the dream of a few days of sun and surf was becoming popular, and the ocean had everything to love and nothing to fear. 
Hotels and restaurants catering to beach-going travelers were popping up everywhere. Piers were springing up along the coast, like the steel pier in Atlantic City, where an act featuring a horse and rider stepping off the end of the pier was drawing thousands of curious and paying onlookers. People knew, of course, that there were sharks in the ocean, but not at the beaches. The idea that a shark might be lurking near where people were swimming didn't even occur to people back then. But all that was about to change. July 1st, 1916 was a bright, sunny day in the coastal resort town of Beach Haven, New Jersey. The surf rolled in and broke gently over warm sands, and throngs of people who had taken the train ride from Philadelphia to enjoy some time at the beach were enjoying all the sights and sounds that Beach Haven had to offer. Charles Van Sant, the 25-year-old son of a Philadelphia doctor who was staying at the posh Engleside Hotel at the beachfront, had decided to take a swim before his dinner along with the Chesapeake Bay Retriever that he had met on the beach, and together they entered the surf. He swam straight out, showing no fear of the water, the dog accompanying him, until, at one point, the dog turned around and headed back for the beach. Van Sant looked back toward the beach, shouted something unintelligible over the roar of the surf, then turned and started to swim back in, and as he did so, people on the beach began to shout, pointing out a fin that had appeared behind the young man, trying to get his attention. They screamed, watch out, as the fin rapidly closed on Van Sant, but with the continuous roar of the surf, their voices were drowned out. At that point, according to witnesses, a large triangular head rose out of the water. A huge jaw opened, showing countless rows of teeth, and then clamped down on Van Sant's leg as he swam. A group of men, including lifeguard Alexander Ott, rushed into the water, which at this point was about three and a half feet deep and Ott reached him first, getting a grip on Van Sant under his arms and pulling toward the sand beach. The shark, seemingly heedless to the shallow water, hung on to his prey, and Ott, now with a few more rescuers joining in, dragged the bleeding body, shark attached, up toward the beach, until the shark, apparently feeling the sand on his belly, gave up his grip and swam back out into the safety of the surf. Van Sant's left thigh was stripped of its flesh and his femoral artery was severed. He bled to death on the manager's desk of the Engleside Hotel at 6.45 p.m. as his father, Dr. Van Sant, who was present, did all he could to save his son's life. Van Sant became the first victim of what was to be called the Jersey Shore Maneater of 1916. The next day, the headline in the New York Times read, Dead After Attack by Fish which illustrates how clueless the papers and society was then to shark attacks. Despite witnesses, the media was considering ideas like giant sea turtles or killer mackerel as being the predators in question. Despite the Van Sant incident, beaches along the Jersey Shore remained open. Sightings of large sharks swarming off the coast of New Jersey were reported by sea captains entering the ports of Newark and New York City, but were dismissed. On July 6th, 45 miles north of Beach Haven at Spring Lake, New Jersey. People were pretty much unconcerned about the death of a swimmer in Beach Haven. The Asbury Park Press even conjectured that it might have been an accidental drowning. A second major attack occurred 45 miles north of Beach Haven at the resort town of Spring Lake, New Jersey. The victim was Charles Bruder, 27 years old, a Swiss bell captain at the Essex and Sussex Hotel. Bruder was killed on Thursday, July 6, 1916, while swimming 130 yards from shore. 
He liked to take swims every day during his late afternoon break from work. A shark bit him in the abdomen and severed his legs. Bruder's blood turned the water red. After hearing screams, a woman notified two lifeguards that a canoe with the red hull had capsized and was floating just at the water's surface. Lifeguards Chris Anderson and George White rode to Bruder in a lifeboat and realized he'd been bitten by a shark. What the woman had mistaken for a canoe was a huge pool of blood. They pulled Bruder into the boat and were initially amazed at how light he was until they realized that most of his legs were gone. Bruder, in shock, was talking, saying, He was a big gray fellow, as rough as sandpaper. He cut me here in the side, and his belly was so rough that it bruised my face and arms. That was when I yelled the first time. I thought he had gone on, but he had only turned and shot back at me and snipped my leg off. Those were his last words. They pulled him from the water, but he bled to death on the way to shore. According to the New York Times, women were panic-stricken and fainted as Bruder's mutilated body was brought ashore. Guests and workers at the Essex and Sussex and neighboring hotels raised money for Bruder's mother in Switzerland. Dr. William G. Schoffler, the governor's staff physician and a surgeon in the National Guard, was called to the area and examined Bruder's body on the beach. He immediately announced that this was the work of a man-eating shark and set about a patrol of armed men and boats to hunt down the killer shark. Inasmuch as Schaffler got it right, the second man to make the determination as to the nature of the beast that had killed Bruder, Dr. John T. Nichols, an ichthyologist from the American Museum of Natural History, got it wrong and said it had to be a killer whale that had done it, and he shared it with the gathering reporters at Spring Lake. Orcas were thought to be man-killers at that time, which was 40 years before science would tell us that orcas, a relative of dolphins, were not man-killers. Imagine a trainer at SeaWorld handing a mackerel to a great white that had just surfaced to give her a kiss, and you can appreciate the difference. Schaffler was true to his word, and a group of hunters with boats was assembled, but they searched in vain for the killer shark. And now, with news of this attack, you can imagine the wild meetings that must have been going on in these coastal towns, half the room shouting that something had to be done and that the tourists needed to be protected. Find the beast and kill him. The other half saying, we don't want to create a panic. Ignore it. Keep it out of the papers. It'll go away. Raise your hand if you're seeing similarities between this story and the novel Jaws, written by Peter Benchley. Benchley's gripping novel was adapted as the film Jaws by Steven Spielberg in 1975. Spielberg's film makes reference to the events of 1916. Brody, the town sheriff played by Roy Scheider, and Woods Hole marine biologist Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, urge Amity's Mayor Vaughn, played by Murray Hamilton, to close the beaches on the 4th of July after the deaths of two swimmers and a fisherman. Hooper explains to the mayor, Look, the situation is that apparently a great white shark has staked a claim in the waters off Amity Island and he's going to continue to feed here as long as there's food in the water. Brody adds, And there's no limit to what he's going to do. I mean, we've already had three incidents, two people killed inside of a week, and it's going to happen again. It happened before. The Jersey Beach, 1916. Five people chewed up on the surf. Authors Richard Ellis, Richard Fernicola, and Michael Capuzzo suggest that the 1916 Jersey Shore attacks and the exploits of New York fisherman Frank Mundus inspired Bensley. While Bensley states that Mundus was an inspiration for shark hunting Quint, 
He has denied that his book Jaws was inspired by the attacks off New Jersey in 1916. It may not have been the sole inspiration, but the panic that the 1916 attacks caused became a part of the historical narrative and changed an entire nation's attitude toward sharks and can't be ignored. Although the book doesn't mention the 1916 attacks, the movie does. Now here's Schauffler with an entire fleet of boats. All these guys armed with everything from dynamite to shotguns. And they're hunting all around every inlet for anything that's moving under the water. I can see Quint out there in one of those boats with Sheriff Brody and Hooper. Already half in the bottle. Pouring a bucket load of bloody fish guts over the side is Chum. Farewell and adieu to you fair Spanish ladies. Farewell and adieu to you ladies of Spain. For we've received orders for to sail back to Boston. And so never more shall we see you again. <laughs> Night falls and they're still out there, baiting the water, polishing off a bottle of Jack, comparing scars. All is fun and games until they get the quint story of the sinking of the Indianapolis by a Japanese torpedo in 1945. And it goes something like this. Brody. What's that one? Quint. Why? Brody. That one there on your arm. What is it? Quint. That's the USS Indianapolis. Hooper immediately stops laughing and says, You were on the Indianapolis? Brody. What happened? Quint. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. So 1,100 men went into the water. 316 came out. And the sharks took the rest. June the 29th, 1945. Meanwhile, the other New Jersey coastal towns are experiencing similar frenzies of action and indecision. At Atlantic City, swim costumes that do not cover the hands and feet are banned. While at Asbury, with the help of publicity, the installation of a shark-proof metal net around the beach perimeter is taking place. The reporter is looking for anyone who knows anything about sharks. Interview the captain of an ongoing ship. He says they don't need still nets. Just shout as loud as you can and strike the water with your feet and hands. That'll scare them off. In every inlet, men and boys are firing everything they have at underwater shapes. Guns, pistols, spears, even dynamite. Sharks are lurking at every turn. Finally is heard the voice of reason as Dr. Frederick Lucas, director of the National History Museum, announces no shark could skin a human leg like a carrot, for the jaws are not powerful enough to induce injuries like those described by Colonel Schaffler. More misinformation, and it went on and on. Any traveler from a more advanced planet would have been writing the report back to his superiors Earth is not advanced enough at this time to consider sharing technologies. Send rescue craft to initiate my immediate removal. The next two major attacks took place in Matawan Creek near the town of Keyport on Wednesday, July 12th. Located 30 miles north of Spring Lake and 12 miles inland of Raritan Bay, Matawan resembled a Midwestern town rather than an Atlantic beach resort. Matawan's location made it an unlikely site for shark human interaction. Matawan Creek was deep enough for large fish and brackish, meaning part saltwater, part fresh. But as any fisherman will tell you, the further you go inland, 
the less saltwater content, and at 15 miles inland, most saltwater fish lack the tolerance to handle mostly fresh water. They would have turned around miles back. A prolonged drought could cause these conditions, and maybe that was the case in 1916. On July 11th, the day before the attacks, a group of young boys were playing in the creek in an area called the Wyckoff Dock near the old limeworks factory on Matawan Creek. 12-year-old Rensselaer Carton was splashing in the water with his friends when something big with skin as rough as sandpaper brushed by him. He screamed and climbed onto the nearby dock. His chest was scratched and bloody. The other boys climbed out as well, but failing to see what it was that had cut up their friend, they eventually returned to the water. Carton left to get bandaged. The next day, July 12th, 59-year-old retired sea captain Thomas Cottrell was taking his morning walk along the banks of Matawan Creek when he spotted something unusual. As he crossed the trolley bridge, he looked down in the water and saw a dark gray shape about 9 to 10 feet long moving upstream. The shape had a dorsal fin cutting through the water's surface, and he knew immediately it was a shark. He had heard about the previous day's incident with the carton boy, and he knew what kind of damage sharks could do from his experience at sea. He ran into the town of Matawan and contacted the barber shop, where he knew he'd find the town constable, John Molsef. Cottrell's story was met with ridicule. How could a large shark live in a creek that was only a few feet deep at low tide? With no help from the local police, Cottrell took it upon himself to try to warn people along the creek. He climbed into a small motorboat and headed up the creek to warn as many people as he could. But by 2 o'clock that afternoon, his warnings had not reached 11-year-old Lester Stilwell. Lester had worked the whole day inside his father's mill, but the heat was unbearable. So he asked for and got permission to join his pals at the local swimming hole. He and friends Albert O'Hara and another named Van Burnt were playing near the Wyckoff dock, and O'Hara was about to leave the water when he heard Lester call, Hey, look at me floating! At that moment, the shark brushed Albert's right leg, causing him to look down where he saw the sinuous tail of a huge fish passing beyond where he could see. Van Burnt also caught a glimpse of the shark, which he later described as big and blackish, like a huge log. They both called to Lester, who answered with a yell, just before the nine-foot shark rose up out of the water and grabbed the boy in its jaws, shaking him. One of the survivors later said, like a cat would shake a mouse. Then it sank into the depths of the now bloody creek, which at this bend was deep and dark enough to hide a 700-pound shark, and disappeared. The boys who had been skinny dipping ran to town naked, screaming, a shark got Lester, and several men known to be good swimmers, including local businessman Watson Stanley Fisher, 24, and George Burlew, came to investigate. By the time they arrived, there was a crowd of people along the bank. The men decided to search the creek for the boy's body, but knowing the tide would be retreating soon, they strung chicken wire across the narrow portion of the creek downstream from the swimming hole so the boy's body would not be pulled out by the outgoing tide. Using a rowboat and long poles, they searched for Stillwell's body for over an hour, but found nothing. Then they left the boat and began searching the creek under the water. Finally, Barlow, exhausted, and perhaps doubting if there was any body to be found, started heading back toward the dock. Fisher was diving below the surface, searching for an underwater cave he thought might be holding the killer shark, and Stillwell. At that moment, Fisher surfaced and shouted, I found him! 
two men grabbed the rowboat and headed over toward Fisher. But Fisher suddenly screamed, He's got me! And the crowd of onlookers screamed as Fisher tried to fight off the monster shark, which had sunk its teeth into his legs. Fisher fought with all he had and made it to shore, but the man-eater had torn most of Fisher's right thigh away, and he was bleeding out fast. Unlike today, there were no emergency medical units that could get him to a hospital fast. By 5.30 that evening, after hours of waiting for the train that would take him to a hospital, with his rope tourniquet tied to his upper thigh, a very hard-to-kill Fisher died on the operating table at Monmouth Memorial Hospital, but not before regaining consciousness long enough to say he had found Stillwell and pulled his body from the shark's mouth. Stillwell's body was recovered 150 feet upstream from the Wyckoff dock on July 14th. And July 12th had not ended after the attack on Stillwell and Fisher. Three quarters of a mile down the creek and only 30 minutes after Fisher was attacked near a local brickyard, young Jerry Horahan and Joseph and Michael Dunn were cooling off in the creek, unaware of what had just taken place further up the creek. They heard a voice being shouted down to them to get out of the water, and almost at the same moment, 12-year-old Joseph Dunn felt something large and very rough brush past him. The voice had come from Jacob Lefferts, who had heard about the attacks upstream, and was running along the creek, warning as many people as he could. The shark turned and headed for Joseph, who was now only 10 feet from the dock and struggling to get through the water. The shark bit down on his leg, but Lefferts and Joe's brother Michael pulled him up on the dock as the shark tried to pull the boy back into the creek. They won the battle and pulled him up, witnessing that most of the flesh on Joseph's leg had been torn away. They managed to get him to St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick, where he recovered from the bite and was released a little more than two months later on September 15, 1916. Matawan instantly turned into the shark hunting capital of New Jersey as men grabbed their guns and fired up their boat engines. A steel mesh net was installed at the mouth of the creek, emptying toward the open water to prevent the man-eater from escaping Matawan. As the national media descended on Beach Haven, Spring Lake, and Matawan, the Jersey Shore attacks started a genuine shark panic. According to author Capuzzo in his book Close to Shore, this panic was unrivaled in American history, sweeping along the coasts of New York and New Jersey and spreading by telephone and wireless, letter and postcard. At first, after the Beach Haven incident, scientists and the press reluctantly blamed the death of Charles Van Sant on a shark. The New York Times reported that Van Sant was badly bitten in the surf by a fish, presumably a shark. Still, even after that, State Fish Commissioner of Pennsylvania and former director of the Philadelphia Aquarium, James N. Meehan, asserted in the Philadelphia Public Ledger that the shark was preying on the dog but bit Van Sant by mistake. He specifically de-emphasized the threat that sharks posed to humans. Despite the death of Charles Van Sant and the report that two sharks were caught in that vicinity recently, I do not believe there is any reason why people should hesitate to go in swimming at the beaches for fear of man-eaters. The information in regard to the sharks is indefinite, and I hardly believe that Van Sant was bitten by a man-eater. Van Sant was in the surf playing with a dog, and it may be that a small shark had drifted in at high water and was marooned by the tide. 
being unable to move quickly and without food. He had come in to bite the dog and snapped at the man in passing. Meanwhile, at the mouth of the Matawan, a hole had been chewed in the steel mesh net that had been placed in the shark's path. The media's response to the second attack was more sensational. Major American newspapers such as the Boston Herald, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Washington Post, and San Francisco Chronicle placed the story on the front page. The New York Times headline read, Shark Kills Bather Off Jersey Beach. The growing panic had cost New Jersey resort owners an estimated $250,000, which would be about $5.5 million today, in lost tourism, and bathing had declined 75% in some areas. A press conference was convened on July 8, 1916, at the American Museum of Natural History with scientists Frederick Augustus Lucas, John Treadwell Nichols, and Robert Cushman Murphy as panelists to calm the growing panic. The three men stressed that a third running with a shark was very unlikely, although they were admittedly surprised that sharks bit anyone at all. Nevertheless, Nichols, the only ichthyologist in the trio, warned swimmers to stay close to shore and take advantage of the netted bathing areas installed at public beaches after the first attack. Our story will continue right after this special Father's Day message from Harry's. Shark sightings increased along the mid-Atlantic coast following the attacks. On July 8th, armed motorboats patrolling the beach at Spring Creek chased an animal they thought to be a shark, and Asbury Park's Asbury Avenue Beach was closed after lifeguard Benjamin Everingham claimed to have beaten off a 12-foot-long shark with an oar. Sharks were spotted near Bayonne, New Jersey, Rocky Point, New York, Bridgeport, Connecticut, Jacksonville, Florida, and Mobile, Alabama and a columnist from Field and Stream captured a sandbar shark in the surf at Beach Haven. And if you've seen pictures of the sandbar sharks, those are actually large ones, not like the smaller sharks we call sand sharks, which are caught regularly off of piers. Actress Gertrude Hoffman was swimming at the Coney Island beach shortly after the Matawan fatalities when she claimed to have encountered a shark. The New York Times noted that Hoffman had the presence of mind to remember that she had read in the Times that a bather can scare away a shark by splashing and she beat up the water furiously. Hoffman was certain she was going to be devoured by the Jersey man-eater, but later admitted she was not sure whether she had had her trouble for nothing or had barely escaped death. And we'll cover more on what to do if you encounter a shark while swimming in Part 2. Local New Jersey governments made efforts to protect bathers and the economy from man-eating sharks. The 4th Avenue beach at Asbury Park was enclosed with a steel wire mesh fence and patrolled by armed motorboats. It remained the only beach open following the Everingham incident. After the fatal attacks of Stillwell and Fisher, and the attack on Dunn, residents of Matawan lined Matawan Creek with nets and detonated dynamite in an attempt to catch and kill the shark. Matawan Mayor Eris B. Henderson ordered the Matawan Journal to print wanted posters offering a $100 reward to anyone killing a shark in the creek. Despite the town's efforts, no sharks were captured or killed in Matawan Creek. The Matawan Journal reported the shark account incident in the front page of its July 13, 1916 issue, with another article about the capture of a shark in Keyport, a neighboring town, in the issue of July 20, 1916. Resort communities along the Jersey Shore petitioned the federal government to aid local efforts to protect beaches and hunt sharks. The House of Representatives appropriated $5,000 to 
for eradicating the New Jersey shark threat, and President Woodrow Wilson scheduled a meeting with his cabinet to discuss the fatal attacks. Treasury Secretary William Gibbs McAdoo suggested that the Coast Guard be mobilized to patrol the Jersey Shore and protect bathers. Shark hunts ensued across the coasts of New Jersey and New York, as the Atlanta Constitution reported on July 14, 1916. Armed shark hunters in motorboats patrolled the New York and New Jersey coast today, while others lined the beaches in a concerted effort to exterminate the man-eaters. New Jersey Governor James Fairman Fielder and local municipalities offered bounties to individuals hunting sharks. Hundreds of sharks were captured on the East Coast as a result of the attacks. The East Coast shark hunt is described as the largest scale animal hunt in history up to that time. Several fishermen claimed to have caught the Jersey man-eater in the days following the attacks. A blue shark was captured on July 14th near Long Branch, and four days later, the same Thomas Cottrell, who had seen the shark in Matawan Creek, claimed to have captured a sandbar shark with a gill net near the mouth of the creek. On July 14th, two days after the Matawan attacks, two men who said they weren't out for a shark that day loaded up their eight-foot motorized dinghy, eight feet being a little longer than a bathtub, and started dragging a six-foot net to trawl the water for fish or crabs or whatever might turn up. Michael Schleiser was a 40-year-old former big game hunter who had worked as a lion tamer for Barnum and Bailey. He owned a taxidermy business in New York City. His friend John Murphy was a 28-year-old laborer for a steamship company. One knew how to deal with large animals, and the other knew the water pretty well. Both talents which would come in useful that day. Just before they got in the boat, Schleiser spotted a broken oar handle minus the paddle end that someone had discarded lying on the dock. He picked it up and carried it into the boat, and his friend asked him why he was bothering to bring it. His answer? Oh, it'll come in handy for something. They started near Staten Island, New York, and trawled their nets southward, checking the net every now and then to see what they had captured. When they reached a point just four miles from the mouth of Matawan Creek, the small digging came to an abrupt stop and the engine stalled. Within seconds, they noticed that not only had the dinghy stopped, but it was being towed backwards and then downwards, and they realized that their net must have caught on something, something that was moving and diving, attempting to pull their small wooden craft down with it. Schleiser looked forward now in the direction they were moving over the stern of the boat as it started to pick up speed and saw a fishtail rising out of the water, recognizing it immediately as a large shark. They were getting a Nantucket sleigh ride from a giant shark. In front of them now, the stern of the boat was filling with water as the shark pulled and the bow had risen in the air. It took all their strength to maintain their positions. They had no spears, no guns, just fishing rods. Then the dinghy stopped moving forward. For a moment, there was a deadly silence. Then the head of a great white shark broke water just off the sinking stern and plunged onto the small boat, snapping its jaws wildly. Schleiser grabbed the broken oar handle and tried to hit the shark on the head with it, but the shark was thrashing so violently it was almost impossible to land a stunning blow. He did connect with the sharp end into the shark's nose and got a good hard shot to the shark's gills. This enraged the shark even more. 
and his jaws swiped at Schleicher's arm, just missing it. But the shark's skin caught Schleicher's wrist and tore it open. When the shark caught the smell of blood, it went crazy. Schleicher then got a hard shot into the shark's nose, penetrating the wound he had made earlier, and that seemed to stun the shark for a moment. Fighting for both their lives now, Schleicher now began a merciless attack on the shark's head and gills with the broken paddle, until, after what seemed like an eternity, the shark stopped moving. It was dead. When the two men were able to gather their wits, Schleicher wrapped his arm in a bloody shirt, and they worked on getting the engine working again. They tied the shark's tail end and dumped him over the side, towing it tail first to South Amboy, where volunteers helped them hoist the seven and one half foot, 350 pound great white from the water, while Schleicher described the greatest fight for life he had ever encountered. Soon after, Schleicher took the shark to his taxidermy shop in Harlem to prepare it for mounting, where he removed 15 pounds of partially digested flesh and bone from its stomach. This he sent to Dr. Frederick Lucas of the American Museum of Natural History, previously mentioned as the expert who said that sharks don't attack humans, who soon identified the remains as belonging to two humans. Lucas identified it as a two-year-old juvenile female great white. The shark, fully mounted, sat for a while in the front window of the Harlem newspaper, where thousands came to see it, and later went back to Schleicher's shop. Then it disappeared into history. No further attacks were reported along the Jersey Shore in the summer of 1916 after the capture of Schleicher's shark. Murphy and Lucas declared the Great White to be the Jersey man-eater. And there was another lifelong Great White shark hunter whose name has been briefly mentioned here, but will receive a fitting memorial in the paragraphs to come, which I think he would have appreciated that of Frank Mundus of Southampton, Long Island, who may still hold the record for the largest great white ever caught on rod and reel at 3,427 pounds. Mundus's stories were rich. His legend was built on the landing of the largest great white sharks with rod and reel, and the largest overall great white shark caught in any manner, 4,500 pounds. That one was caught with harpoon and barrels, just like the one in the film Jaws. The reason the story of Jaws mirrors the catching of the 4,500-pound Great White was because, according to Frank, he told Peter Bensley, the author of the book the movie Jaws was based on, every detail of his catch. He never received a dime, but Frank thanked Roy Scheider, a star of the movie, for acknowledging that Frank Mundus was the real Quint in a TV interview. All I ever wanted was one word, thanks, he once told a reporter. That 3,427-pound record shark came on August 4, 1986. Frank Mundus tells the story and many others in his book, 50 Years a Hooker, the title alone sounding like something Quint would have dreamed up. The big one was caught with the harpoon and barrels just like in Jaws the movie, but this one, as he pointed to the replica of the 3,427-pound great white that still hangs at Star Island, he said, that was with a rod and reel. The story of that catch starts with a charter of men from the Advantage Food Company, fishing for tuna, led by Mr. Jerry Rounds, a name to live in fishing infamy, because he and his party had the chance to be part of this history. However, as do so many on long fishing trips, they asked to be taken ashore when they were asked if they would like to take part in a great white hunt that day. Jerry Rounds and his group had been out all day and perhaps were very concerned about their long drive back to Jersey. 
The adventure started that day with a radio report of a nearby dead whale carcass. Frank steered his cricket, too, to the carcass and roped the fishing boat to the whale. Jerry Rounds reportedly said, Frank, it's almost 7 p.m. When are we going home? Frank knew he was staying to attempt to catch his life's passion, the largest fish ever on rod and reel. So Mundus radioed a nearby charter boat named the First Light. Meanwhile, Donnie Braddock, captain of the Fish On, was also at the whale carcass with his fishing party and actually hooked a great white. But that white shark got away after a battle ending with the shark biting himself free. Frank actually told Donnie via the radio as he was headed back toward Montauk to pick up some pizzas and then back out to the whale to help him catch a great white. Donnie, along with his two crew members, John D. Leonardo and Ted Fuhrer Jr., did come back around 10 to 11 p.m. with the pizza. Then Donnie lashed his boat to the whale, thus freeing Cricket 2. With seven white sharks at times feeding around the whale, Frank announced he was going to sleep, saying that no way was he going to fish for a great white in the dark. The next morning, they walked about on the dead whale carcass. Then the men spotted the big boy they wanted and actually hand-fed them the baited hook. Then the shark went down. With Donnie Braddock in the chair, the fight was one hour and 40 minutes old when the big boy surfaced. In Frank's written words, his head and body rose out of the water. He emerged almost to his dorsal fin. The shark was snapping his jaws as his head jerked from side to side, trying to bite the line. Frank then took a gamble and threw the boat in reverse as Donnie reeled in more line. Then Mundus threw the boat into forward gear, full throttle. After some more fighting, they attached the first flying gaff with half-inch nylon rope, and the shark rolled the line around him. With that, the crew was able to land a second flying gaff. Again in Frank's words, he, the shark, found out he couldn't get away by trashing and rolling. Now he started to pull our heavy boat in circles, spinning the cricket too around like it was a button on an outhouse door. By 6 p.m., Mundus and the boys were headed home with the shark in tow behind them. They called Montauk Marine Basin so that someone could go up island and get a scale large enough to weigh in the monster. At 11 p.m., they were at the Montauk Basin dock with their catch being weighed in at 3,500 pounds, less the weight of the ropes and lines. The final weight was set at 3,427 pounds, a record. But in Frank's world, nothing ever seemed to go easy. The International Game Fish Association disqualified Frank Shark because, in their words, the whale was doing the chumming. But as far as everyone else in fishing was concerned, the boys landed the record by almost 1,000 pounds. Before 1916, American scholars doubted that sharks would fatally wound a living person in the temperate waters of the United States without provocation. One skeptical science even wrote, There's a great difference between being attacked by a shark and being bitten by one. He believed that sharks tangled in fishing nets or feeding on carrion might accidentally bite a nearby human. In 1891, millionaire banker and adventurer Herman Ulrichs offered a $500 reward in the New York Sun for an authenticated case of a man having been attacked by a shark in the temperate waters north of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina. He wanted proof that, in temperate waters, even one man, woman, or child, while alive, was ever attacked by a shark. The reward went unclaimed, and scientists remained convinced that the eastern coast of the United States was inhabited by harmless sharks. All that prior to 1916. How 12 days can change the conscience of a nation. 
The Jersey Shore attacks compelled scientists in the United States to revise their assumptions that sharks were timid and powerless. In July of 1916, ichthyologist and editor for the National Geographic Society, Hugh McCormick Smith, published an article in the Newark Star Eagle describing some shark species as harmless as doves and others, the incarnation of ferocity. He continued, One of the most prodigious and perhaps the most formidable of sharks is the man-eater. Carcharodon carcarius, great white. It roams through all temperate and tropical seas and everywhere is an object of dread. Its maximum length is 40 feet and its teeth are three inches long. By the end of July 1916, John Nichols and Robert Murphy were taking the great white more seriously. In Scientific American, Murphy wrote that the white shark is perhaps the rarest of all noteworthy sharks. Their habits are little known, but they are said to feed to some extent on big sea turtles. Judging from its physical makeup, it would not hesitate to attack a man in open water. He concluded that, because it is evident that even a relatively small white shark, weighing two or three hundred pounds, might readily snap the largest human bones by the jerk of its body after it is bitten through the flesh. While sharks had been seen as harmless, the pendulum of public opinion quickly swung to the other extreme, and sharks quickly came to be viewed not only as eating machines, but also as fearless, ruthless killers. In the 100 years since the Matawan man-eater attacks, there's been a huge increase in knowledge regarding the habits, migratory patterns, and breeding characteristics of all types of sharks. Knowledge has replaced fear in many cases, and caution has led to improvements in the way we monitor shark movements and protect our beaches. Accepting the role of human beings in preserving our earth and its inhabitants, we also bear the responsibility of maintaining a proper balance of nature, and a number of organizations are committed to that today. After a sharp decline in the past 50 years, almost all shark species are making a comeback, and we'll discuss what caused the decline and what has enabled the comeback. In part two, we'll follow the trail of the great white, one of the most mysterious of all the shark species, and find out what is being done to monitor and understand them. We'll look at the efforts made by coastal areas in Australia and the United States to protect their beaches. We'll study shark attacks from the past 10 years to see how they could have been prevented, including the spate of North Carolina shark attacks in 2015, and in doing so, hopefully share knowledge that will benefit all of us. Most importantly, we'll give you an honest estimation on where we are with regard to making our beaches safe, and from what I'm seeing now, we've come a long way. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Stay tuned next week for Sharks, Then and Now, Part 2. 1001 Heroes is a proud member of the 1001 Stories Podcast Network, which includes this show, as well as 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, our latest edition. All our stories give you a unique look at the world around us, and usually from an historical perspective. You can find us at iTunes, at Stitcher.com, at Podbay.fm, or our home website at 1001storiespodcast.com. And we'll leave you our iTunes links and our home website link in the show notes for your easy reference and use. We invite you to subscribe to all three of our shows. It's free. And leave us a review whenever you hear a show you enjoy. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.